Good morning and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. I'm very excited to be here this morning. We're coming to you live from our studios in Woodland Hills. Today, what is today's date? It's the 2nd of November. That's what it is. I got to look because I don't know anymore. Uh, as I said, we're very excited to be with you live this morning, uh, especially because we've got an amazing guest who's going to be coming up a little bit later on in the show. Amanda Mandy Ralston is going to be here with us talking about a wide variety of things, including my favorite subject, which is intensity, um, but uh, many different things that she's going to be talking uh, about with us. And I'll, I'll uh, get into that a little bit more, but you're going to want to hear from her. I know, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm on social media and I see things that other people are posting and you know how somebody will post something and you go, yeah, that right? And you go, oh, you know, you like that. And you go, yeah, yeah, that. And then you see them post something else and you go, oh yeah, that. And you keep doing that with the stuff that they post. That's Amanda Ralston to me. I just keep going, yes, that and pointing to it until we got to the point where I was like, you just need to come on the show because I need to know more of what you're about because so much of what you've been posting, I've been like, oh yes, let's all pay attention. Um, so excited that uh, she's going to be joining us a little later on. And hopefully you guys will also listen to what she has to say and go, oh, yeah, that uh, super important. So thrilled that she's going to be here. Want to remind you that we're live right now on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter and about a dozen other sites. And our fabulous Traven, oh, our fabulous Traven is going to show those to you in just a minute. While he's doing that, I want to remind you guys of a couple of different things. We invite experts like Mandy Ralston to be on the show to talk with you. Um, and a lot of times I'm here talking with you, but I always like to remind you that I am not an expert in the field of autism. Oh, far from. Uh, I am a proud pony. I know many of you watching identify now as a pony. Uh, I always, like, it makes me so happy. It makes me think I have a rainbow colored ponytail. I don't know why. But uh, PONY, which stands for Parent of a Neurodiverse Individual, and sometimes I like to say that I'm a PONY, which is a really fancy uh, <laughs> ponytail, that I'm a parent of a neurodiverse adult individual. Couldn't, couldn't be happier about that moniker and couldn't be prouder of him and, and his life and, and what he's doing. So I'm coming to you from that space. I am also coming to you from the space of a mom See, I get welled up already, who, when my child was diagnosed at two and a half, really didn't know what to do, who was really lost and felt the pressure of the world, like, what am I going to do to support this individual and make sure that he is the happiest person doing what he wants to do in life, right? I think, I think every parent wants that for their child, and sometimes when your child is diagnosed with autism it really calls into question, like, what, what do I know? How can I be of service to this child? How can I be the most loving ally that there is on the planet? And there's a lot of information out there and not all of it's good. And, uh, and when, when we think about how we're going to help our kids, I think a lot of, I want to speak for myself, but I also know that there are many parents who've expressed this to me over the years that it can feel very overwhelming and like maybe we're not up to the task and it feels very lonely, like maybe there's nobody else who understands where we are. So that is part and parcel of why we started this show 12 years ago was because I wanted people to have a safe place where they could come and be with all of those feelings and maybe get information and inspiration. And that's what this show is about to provide those things. But I do like to remind you, I'm not an expert in autism. I'm somebody who got through that phase, got to the phase where my son got the help and support that was essential to him. And it's not one size fits all, you guys, at all. And now I am in the phase where he is an adult and starting to lead his own life independently of me, which, you know, every once in a while I gotta, somebody's gotta stop and tell me to breathe, right? Because, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard for me to just let him go and figure things out for himself. I think that's hard for any parent, but especially when you've had to figure extra things out, I think we get a little too used to being hands-on. Anybody else out there? Can we get an amen? In any case, I am here because I care about the journey that you are on. And for this show, we always talk about how this show is meant for 
that larger autism community that of course starts with individuals who are on the spectrum, that they are the beating heart of our community. There are total why, right? Um, but then we include in, in that larger in community, not only those individuals, but everyone who loves those individuals, everyone who wants to be a good ally. Now, big asterisk here, even myself, I don't, I, sometimes I step in it and I don't, I, sometimes I'm not a good ally. Even though my intent was, sometimes I'll say or do something and my son or my friends will call me out and go, <laughs> that's a little ableist right there, or that's not really support, that's not the support we asked for or are needing, right? And all I can be in those, in those moments is a good student. And I wanna be a good student. I wanna hear, I wanna listen, I wanna know when I don't get it right. Um, and, you know, I think that that's important. And I need to be humble enough to say, I don't always get it right, right? But together, together, if we keep moving, I just got goosebumps, together, um, si se puede, right? We hold hands and together we get there. So that's why I'm here. Um, that's why we invite the guests that we guess that get, that we invite so that we can have the conversation go further. This was a big topic on Saturday night when we had the fundraiser for Autism Care Today. The, uh, there were other awards that Autism Care used to uh, give, but uh, we started the Lending Your Voice because it is important that we all lend our voice where we can to help those that we love. And sometimes uh, I loved that two of the awards were given to people, young men, talented artists on the autism spectrum that are using their talents to lend their voice to people who may not have the ability that they have because they're in the public spotlight. Of course, I'm talking about the fabulous Kobe Bird, um, an, an actor on the autism spectrum who is, you know, if you haven't watched him on Lock and Key, you should. There he, look at how fast Draven is. Uh, amazing, amazing actor on Lock and Key. Make sure that you watch all the way to season three because his role gets bigger in season three. Um, and also the fabulous Logan Shepard, who is a drummer playing internationally at this point. Hey, I'm saying good morning uh, to everyone who's watching. Uh, Sarah, good morning. Liliana, good morning. Uh, thrilled that you guys are here with us. But uh, I, I, so two of the awards were given to individuals on the spectrum. And then there were two awards, one that was given to an entity, which was the Disney film Pinocchio, which if you haven't seen, oh my goodness, you guys, I don't, there's not enough time in the show to talk about how many ways I love that movie. Um, I, I was not, the first movie Pinocchio was not out when I was little. So I didn't get to see it till I was an adult. Cause you know, I'm at an age where, Disney movies only came out of the vault every seven years. So I guess Pinocchio must have come out in a place where I, you know, I didn't see it as a child. And when I did see it as an adult, the original movie, I was like, um, this is scary. And this is like, maybe like too scary. I did, as an adult, I was not like in love with it. Like a lot of people are with the movie. So I wasn't sure about seeing the new one. And when I saw the new one, my heart came out of my body Tom Hanks grab, grabbed a hold of it, squished it, stomped on it, put it back into my body and lovingly reassembled it. Um, and the script itself, what such inclusion, I, I, oh, my heart was so touched. And as the daughter of a mom who was born, she would have said with legs that didn't match. My mother was born with both feet, club feet, her feet were facing, facing backwards. And she spent most of my life either in braces or on crutches or in a wheelchair. And, um, and she would have told you, and I would tell you, she's the most able person that I have ever met in my life, right? Um, my mother would have loved that movie. It just makes me cry. Sorry, I'm emotional today because of the inclusion and what it said about being differently abled and what it said about being loved for who you are, not for somebody wa what somebody wants you to be. Hello. Um, yeah. So that's why it got an award. And then of course, Joey King, the fabulous Joey King, who you may not know has been on so many red carpets supporting individuals on the spectrum for years. Even when she was itty bitty, <laughs> like this little, I remember the first time I interviewed her and she was tiny little girl. And she was talking about how 
she has friends that are on the spectrum and that they were the most amazing people and how people needed to look at this in a different way at a time when people weren't looking at it a different way. So anyway, uh, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Uh, tomorrow, though, we're going to be showing you some of the highlights of what happened at that event. Whoo, it's such a good time. It was a little off the rails, crazy fun, um, but money was raised and awareness was raised. And the thing that I'm the proudest of, I mean, there were so many things to be excited about, but the thing I was proudest of was that our red carpet was the most inclusive red carpet I've ever been on. And we had so many stars that were people, you know, I, I, other people talk about disability. I don't want to talk about disability. I want to talk about this ability. We had this ability all over that red carpet. And it made me really happy in all different ages, all different colors, all different abilities. It was awesomeness. So anyway, uh, all right, we got to get to the jargon because I don't want to make my guest wait. Uh, and hopefully, hello, good morning. Uh, I'm seeing you guys write in. You can write in right now, Facebook, YouTube. Did I say that all before? I don't know what I've said today because I'm so excited. Um, we're live right now, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Did Traven, did you already show them all the different ways? Don't forget that you can be, you don't have to watch us live. In fact, most of you don't. You can download the free podcast. We're available anywhere you can get podcasts. Um, and if you want to watch the video version, YouTube is our home for our video now at this moment in time. We really have uh, doubled down on the YouTube video portion of our show. So Trayvon is reminding me to ask you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's really where you're going to get the most up-to-date information from us about what we've posted, even what's upcoming, right? But you can like us on Facebook. We do dearly love when you guys interview us on iTunes. I don't know what the algorithm does with that, but it does something fabulous. And what it does, you guys, is it makes it um, go higher up when people are searching for podcasts about anything. Um, and people find us and say, how did I not know about you? So it makes it possible for more people to know the information that we're giving out for free here. So, um, we appreciate, hello, Helen, how are you? Good morning to you. So thrilled that you guys are here. Okay. Let's, let's take a look at our jargon. We always do jargon of the day. And for those of you who know, the first thing that we like to do is we like to give you a definition that is in a book or on a website. And often we like to make fun of that definition because sometimes the definition is so filled with more jargon that it's useless to us, right? And then we give you a working definition and I try to give you a, an example so that you have a beginning understanding of what it is that we're talking about. It's a little flip today. Uh, I'm told that we've never actually done this in the jargon of the day this term which is EIBI. Uh, that stands for Early Intensive Behavioral Intervention. And it's apparently we've covered it endlessly on the show, but we've never actually done it as jargon of the day. So let's take a look at what our actual definition is and see if we can make heads or tails of it. So, and I looked at a bunch of different uh, in, uh, definitions before I arrived at this one. So EIBI, Early Intensive Behavioral Intervention, and this is coming to us from Springer.com. Early and intensive behavioral intervention is an evidence-based intervention using the principles and procedures from applied behavior analysis to teach adaptive behaviors to young children with autism spectrum disorders. Several outcome studies have indicated that best outcome is achieved when treatment is started as early as possible before the age of five and with high intensity 30 to 40 hours a week. That's from Springer.com. Now, Normally, we, you know, we would go, oh, like, you know, I don't understand this. And the truth is, if you're on day one and your child has just been diagnosed with autism, there might be a lot of things in this that you don't understand, like you're going applied behavior analysis. I don't know what that is. Um, you know, you don't, you may not know what an outcome study is. And when they start talking about a high intensity, 30 to 40 hours a week, if you're like me on the first day that they started telling this to me, I went, you're out of your mind. Like my son is two and a half and you want him to go to a 40 hour a week program. That's a full time job. You're out of your mind. Um, right. So that would be your reaction to this. And normally we would go to a working definition and 
we would water this down a little bit and I would, you know, make it a little bit more user friendly. But let's go to our working definition because for the first time, I'm going to say what Springer said. Because so many people over the last 10 years have taken what was just in that Springer and watered it down to the point where I was looking this up online and looking at what people's actual definition for EIBI was. And it was saying, doing one-on-one intervention. Do it. But none of them talked about what the outcome study said. None of them talked about what intense meant. And that was making me itchy. So, and we don't want, we don't want me to be itchy. Can we go back to the actual definition, Traven, so that we can just break this down a little bit so that people understand? Uh, thrilled that you guys are here with us. Uh, so here we are. So apply behavior analysis, which is something we're going to talk about with our guests today. I just like to say to everybody, there are all these definitions for that, but it's a teaching technique. It's a teaching technique that is found to be effective with all kinds of people in all kinds of ages at all kinds of abilities. It's a teaching technique. Now you can apply a teaching technique in a lot of different ways. And yes, before everybody starts going completely gazongo on the chat, I am aware of the fact that some people are doing applied behavior analysis in a way that I don't agree with, that I don't, I don't agree, and I don't think of that as being best practices for applied behavior analysis, right? So there's lots of variation. Just like in autism, there's a big, ginormous spectrum for applied behavior analysis. But the second part of this is what I want to draw the attention to because I want the most education for this. This is the part that's important that there have been several, and I mean so many outcome studies now, that have indicated that EIBI, early intensive behavioral intervention, can be very effective in treating autism. And what do I mean by that? That means that the person is able to, in some cases, get to the point where none of us would look at them and say that there is any kind of a disability. Now, We can argue about all of that, and I hope we will, because what a wonderful thing to argue about. But I'm coming to you as a parent of a child who was designated as being disabled. And that hurt my heart. And I didn't, coming from a mom who I just told you had legs that didn't match, and my mother never got to run a day in her life. The thing that she wanted to do the most, she never got to run, but my mother would never have qualified herself as being disabled. She would have told you she was as abled as anybody. I watched as my mother pole vaulted over a fence and saved a child from drowning out of a swimming pool using her crutches and using her knowledge because my mother ended up being a nurse while while people we would classify as able-bodied watched her save that child from drowning, right? My mother was able, right? So to have my child labeled disabled was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. But there were things that my son could not do to help himself. And it became incumbent upon us as, as parents and his family and as, him, as part of a society to help him to get his needs met in a way that was functional for him. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. And no one would look at my son now and, and classify him as being disabled. And yes, there are people that are on the autism spectrum who do not have the facility to speak. Uh, That doesn't mean that they don't have something to say, but we would never say to them, we're not going to give you another mode of communication, right? Uh, Because that would be disabling if we did not allow someone to communicate their needs. So I want to make sure that we're all talking about that. But there is something really important here to me, and that's intensity, that the studies showed that uh, and I want to be clear that there are no studies, and, and I, I think that Amanda's going to talk about this, or there's not enough studies after the age of five, but there are plenty of studies that show that under the age of six, in fact, that if, if it's done intensively, that kids can learn, that they can grow skills, that they can overcome things that have been holding them back. And that uh, I, as this says, and as I've said, has been uh, replicated many times. There are many studies that show that. So that's why I don't want us to cut that intensive part out of the discussion. And it's part of the reason why we've got 
Mandy Ralston joining us here in just a few minutes. Okay, so we're going to talk more about this. If it's all like, I don't get it to you, stick with us because I, I got you here. Okay. Uh, hi, Huma, watching from Pakistan. Thrilled that you're here. Okay, let's move on, though, to our question of the day. And our question today for all of you, dun, 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 dun. I have no idea what it is. I don't think I picked. I think Trayvon picked. What is it? Uh, oh, who do you trust to ask questions? What a good question, Trayvon. Who do you trust to ask questions? Because this is really what it comes down to, right? The first person that I asked questions about autism was the doctor who diagnosed my son. And you know what? I, I come to find out she was not a person that I could trust to give me good answers. She was steeped in, uh, you know, the ideas that were 50 years old and told me that I should be grateful because in the beginning of her practice, she would have told me just to put my son away in a home is how she, and, and that she would have advised me to just walk away from him. Right. And she said, but I'm not telling you to do that today. I'm telling you to go home and enjoy him. And she did not want to talk to me about what could we do so that he wasn't biting me, that he wasn't hitting, that he had a way of communicating his needs. So she was not somebody that deserved my trust to ask questions. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. She was the expert of record who was standing in front of me that I thought I could trust, right? So who do you trust to ask questions and what do you base that trust on, right? Um, dicey, 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 dicey. All right. But, uh, write in and tell us who you trust. Good morning, Susie B. So thrilled to see you here. Uh, okay. And then let's move on to our topic of the day. Cause then I want to get to our guest. We're a little bit late. Uh, our topic this week, again, I have no idea cause Traven's the wonder that he is mm. building your inner circle. I love that. I'm always building my inner circle. Who are the people that I trust? Who do I want to let into my circle? Which leads me very nicely to our guests. Because as I said at the start of the show, you know, you're seeing things on Facebook and you and you don't really know everybody that you know on Facebook, right? But you see something on Facebook and you go, ah, mm-hmm, that, that I agree with that wholeheartedly. And then you see more things by that person. I've become friends with people because I see, I, like either I'm learning from their posts or I agree with it and they said it better than I could have ever said it. Or, you know, it's like, wow, this is like a thing that I had never seen before that I want to see more of. So all of those things have been true for our guests. Uh, I want to welcome, and I'm going to read because she's got some amazing credits here. Amanda, Mandy Ralston, has been certified as a behavior analyst since 2001, but started as first as a BCABA and then as a BCBA. During her career, she's founded two companies that provided applied behavior analysis services to hundreds of families, schools, and individuals with autism or other developmental or intellectual disabilities. She's ushered dozens of aspirational behavior analysts into the field. Amen and thank goodness for her. I do not understand the next phrase, and we're going to have her explain it. I don't know what my Corhazal influencer is. So Mandy, you're going to have to explain that to us in pursuit of greater impact of change for uh, constituents. Amen to that. Uh, she's a, a subject matter expert and has served as such to multiple international work groups and panels related to behavior analysis, ethics, outcomes, and practice. She's been a featured speaker in several mediums globally. So we're so lucky to have her. She continues to mad happily create unique solutions by synthesizing her own history of reinforcement and punishment with evidence-based practices. So we want to know more about that from her. Uh, Clinical and business intelligence and technology in an effort to further support clinicians, funders, businesses, and founders in a changing world for QOL outcomes, neurodiversity, equity, and uh, inclusion. And recently, uh, her most recent venture is that she is the CEO and founder of Non-Binary Solutions, which is a data analysis and technology firm making clinical decision support systems for pro- providers and other constituents of applied behavior analysis. I want to know everything that there is about that. So let's welcome Amanda Mandy Ralston to the show for the first time, but I hope not the last time. Mandy. Hi, everybody. How are you? I am so excited to have you here. And can I just say from the beginning, I aspire to have hair like you. 
I can't get my hair to do what your hair does, but I, obviously you can see that I'm a wannabe. Um, so love, love, love your hair. Um, it's, it's where I want to go. But uh, Mandy, so excited to be here. I don't even know where to start, but let's start with non-binary solutions. Talk to people about what it is, what it does, and why you felt the need to start it. Sure. Um, so non-binary solutions is... Uh, healthcare technology firm, and I'm making clinical decision support systems for providers of autism treatment services. Um, And so the reason that I'm doing that is because we have uh, 500% growth in behavior analysis providers in the last 10 years, and over half of them have less than three years post-certification experience, and there's still not enough providers, right? Uh, we still don't have enough individuals to, to serve the individuals that do want this therapy, right? Um, so basically, these clinical decision support systems um, are basically like uh, technological bumper rails. They help people think about how to make these different decisions. It doesn't tell them what to do. It tells them what to think about, right? So it guides you through a way of thinking, sort of like a digital mentorship, Um, because there's not enough old people like me around to actually mentor all the younger clinicians that are coming up. And And if uh, we're calling you old, then I'm in big trouble. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So be careful Uh, with that. But I I hear what you're saying. There's a level of expertise that the research has shown. If if there's a certain level of expertise, that's going to help to better outcomes, right? It makes sense. Of course. Yeah. I mean, obviously your first year MD has a different learning set and a different lens to look through than uh, somebody that's been a doctor and practicing for 15, 20 years. So the, the same thing applies here. Yeah. I, I often think, you know, when I'm talking to professionals like you who've been in this field for a long time, um, you know, sometimes uh, things around a kiddo will come up that, okay, that, you know, the kiddo is doing X, Y, and Z. And, and, you know, and we know now that it's not just autism, right? That there are autisms and, mm-hmm. and we've, we've started to sort of break down and go, okay, well, there's a group of people who have this in common. And what I see is professionals like yourself that can just sort of weed through all that because you've already seen this with another kiddo and you've mm-hmm. seen what worked and what didn't work. And you can bypass all of that and get to what worked. So is that kind of what non-binary solutions is doing? Yeah, I mean, it's really understanding um, who are the individuals that are coming into your care and what similarities do they have? And can we get some consensus around uh, what most providers would say if we if we saw that these are the things that you wanted to work on, how we would go about treating that, right? And based on your input, based on what's important to you. And I, I want to mention, too, that the, the term non-binary, the, I, I chose it for multiple reasons. A, a binary is zeros and ones, right? Literally, there's only zero or one. And I think about this in terms of uh, people, not just people with autism, but human beings are not binary. So that's why the hashtag is, it's not binary. It's, it's not black and white. Um, everybody that has this one diagnosis code that they all share, it's not binary, right? It's a spectrum. There's a whole range of people in here. So, uh, so yeah, rather than thinking in black and white, you really have to understand the multitude of shades of gray that go into talking about human people. Amazing. Amazing. Because we need so much more of that. Uh, okay, I don't under, I, I have to stop and ask what my Corazol influencer, what in the hey nani nani is that? Teach me. Uh, so, uh, did I even say it right? I, yeah, I think you did. Um, okay. my Corsia are a specific type of fungi, and so it's a symbiotic relationship between the fungus and the organisms that it, it interacts with, right? So, my, my interaction with these behavior analysts, um, we have you know, we have a symbiotic relationship, right? I'm helping to further them onto their careers. They're helping me learn about things that are important to them. It uh, then affects the ecosystem of the people that are coming into their care. So it's, it's, a, it's an ecosystem issue. So, so to say that I'm an influencer is to say that I'm very much influenced by the ecosystem that I'm in. It's, it's not just me influencing the ecosystem. So, All right. Well, gosh, I learned many things already today. Uh, okay. One of the things, and I want to talk about everything and we don't have enough time to talk about everything. So I'm going to try to hone in on 
One of the topics that I've seen you posting on that really has rung my bell many times and that you and I spoke about the other day is this idea of intensity. And I recently spoke at an event and I said, who voted intensity off the island? <laughs> right? Like, I don't understand this, Mandy. And, and, and I need experts because it can't just be me that's saying this. Talk to us about intensity. What, what does it mean? Why should we be being, paying attention to this? And, and why is there some frightening, frightening things happening around intensity? Well, I, I can only guess that some of the pressure about intensity and trying to vote it off the island, if you will, has to do with uh, people not understanding what they're criticizing, first and foremost, okay. um, and trying to drive a conversation towards um, efficiency and therefore less cost, etc. cetera. Uh, that is my assumption. I, I don't have any data to, to bear that out with you. But you know, what we know about intensity, which is also sometimes called dosage, um, is that in general, the, the, the information that we have, the resources that we do have, uh, suggests that three things are going to be indicators of, quote, unquote, best possible outcomes for early intervention. And it is the intensity uh, of the services, right? So the more, the better between 30 and 40 hours a week, right? Um, the uh, the general uh, imitation abilities of the individual at the outset of services and how much the parents are involved in the actual treatment. And those those three things are really the most identifiable indicators of best possible outcomes that we've, we've had in research for that age group of two to eight. You said five earlier. What I've been seeing more recently is talking about eight years old is sort of that early intervention magic number. Um, and so we don't have enough research about what happens after eight years old based on intensity, et cetera, or even what happens about quote unquote optimal outcomes. Um, because those are very different from person to person, right? That's a very intrapersonal measure of what is optimal. Um, but uh, I think what we can say is that because applied behavior analysis is a science of human behavior, and it's not just for people with autism, it's not the only area that you can use ABA in as a teaching method, there's an entire... Uh, sector of applied behavior analysis called organizational behavioral management, which is for adults that are professionals. And there's no age cutoff for whether or not it's effective <laughs> to use these different techniques in those types of organizations. So, you know, my sort of rationale is if you can't impose an age cutoff for organizational behavior management, why should there be one for early intervention or intervention set at changing quality of life metrics for any individual, regardless of their diagnosis. Well, I'm so, so happy to hear you say that, because I think whenever we talk about early intervention, I, you know, there's always that, that group of people where their kids are 7, 8, 9, 10, 14, 25, and they go, oh, I missed the boat. And this is not available to me anymore. And that's why I was trying to say earlier, it's just that most of the research is earlier, but I love uh, what you just said because we do know that Fortune 500 companies use this with executives. That's right. Uh, you know, and we know that Olympic athletes use this. So the That's timer right. doesn't go off at a certain age. But I do see that what happens is that the hours that a day in the day get taken up with other things for older kids. That's that right. we, there is an opportunity when kids are younger before school starts when, you know, maybe they would have been at daycare. Maybe they would have been home with a family member. Um, maybe they would have been in preschool, but that, but that we're not tied to those things as a society that we That's could right. fill it with other therapy. Whereas once school starts, there is real pressure put to bear by the school that the child has to be in that seat a certain number of hours a day because they don't get funding if they aren't. Mm -hmm. And, and so it gets hard for parents, I think, to juggle how much can we do in a day. Uh, but there are many parents who have found a way to juggle it with school and to have hours of ABA to help the child that is 12 to gain new skills to help them to communicate their needs. So I, I wanted to at least say that, but I, I don't want to do most of the talking here. I want you to be talking about, because you've seen a lot 
in your time period that, you know, you've, you've been somebody who has been a practitioner of ABA, both as a BCABA, and maybe we should take a second for you to explain to people what that is, but then later as a BCBA. Do you want to tell them what a BCABA is and how you came into this? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I originally started working with, uh, a few families in Lexington, Kentucky that were flying a consultant out from California once a quarter and sharing the cost of that consultant, uh, to teach people like me that were recent grad students, um, how to implement this ABA therapy with their children. And so that's how I first learned about ABA. Um, and I, quickly learned that I wanted to know more and there had to be a better way to do it. And so I started following uh, Dr. Vincent Carbone around the country and listening to his workshops. And uh, sometime in uh, 2000, he offered a workshop up in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, which allowed us to come down and do an intensive 90 hour week boot camp um, and then started a mentorship program with, with him year round where I actually sent VHS tapes back and forth in the mail um, and called him on a landline monthly in order to have our supervision meetings so that he could tell me what I was doing right and wrong. Um, and then I sat for my exam in 2001 in Nashville with a number two pencil and a Scantron machine. So that was when I became a board certified assistant behavior analyst because I did not have a graduate degree at that point. And certification was only three years old at that point as well. The, the BACB only started their certification in 1998. So I, I was an early adopter to this uh, technology and to this certification. Um, it, it didn't occur to me that I was going to need to have that master's degree in order to practice independently until about 2011, when I saw that insurance mandates were starting to come through and I knew that the credentialing was going to change. So I ended up getting a master's in education uh, at that point and, and upped my uh, credentials to the BCBA. So, Amazing. Uh, now you say something here in, in your bio that, or it says something, it says, uh, that you're mad, mad happily creating unique solutions by synthesizing your own history of reinforcement and punishment with evidence-based practices, clinical and business intelligence and technology. I, I want to, and there's more there, but I want to stop and talk about what, tell us what you mean about bringing your own history of reinforcement and punishment and how that is driving part of this conversation. Sure. Uh, well, I, I, I have founded two different clinics uh, in my time as a behavior analyst, and the most recent of which um, I started in 2007 and um, ended up selling in 2019 to a, a large group here nationally. Um, but prior to selling, I, I was the person in charge of doing all of the initial intake to meet each family personally as they would come into the clinic and have a 45 minute conversation at least with them to try to understand what their concerns were, what their needs were, what their strengths are, what kind of networks they had, what kind they needed. Um, and so that's really the, the history of reinforcement and punishment of understanding, oh, I should have asked that question earlier on in the process, or I, I should have listened, listened a little harder at what they were saying because there was something underneath there that I should have cued on to to have more follow up about. Right. Like, so, give us an know. example of that, because I think what you're talking about is the core of so much that needs to be fixed. <laughs> right. Right there. This is one of the reasons why you guys, she posts something and I go that, that, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have seen this in other circumstances where other behavior analysts, maybe with less experience and less reinforcement and punishment, they'll go into a situation and they'll have a conversation with a parent and they'll say, what's going on? What can I help you with? And they'll say, my son is eight years old and uh, isn't currently toilet trained independently. And also we can't go to a restaurant because the noise is too much for him and it's overstimulating. And also um, he only eats five foods and we're concerned about all of that. That's, that's a problem for us, right? As an individual family. Not everybody has issue with all those things, but that's what the parent says. And what the provider ends up doing is saying, okay, great. We'll do this assessment that has absolutely nothing to do with the three things that that family just said were the things that were going to change their quality of life. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so part of my soapbox here is that your outcomes begin with selecting the appropriate assessment tools. Right. So understanding that your outcomes are tied to your assessment, not just 
qualitatively that somebody reports to you, thank you, now my son is toilet trained at age eight, but also that you had data to suggest here's where they were prior to intervention or teaching, and here's where they are now, so that you didn't have uh, quantitative data as well. So, you know, it's, it's understanding, listening to what people's actual meaningful and measurable goals should be in a program and not just saying, okay, I hear what you just told me. I'm going to go do this cookie cutter thing that is somewhat tangentially related to what you just told me, but it's going to be a long time before you connect the dots. So that, that's sort of what I mean. That's amazing because, you know, I don't have any expertise in this area, except that I'm often called in to speak to a group about how to get parent buy-in. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's so funny because what you just said is I go at it in an entirely different way, but I'm always talking to them about, you need to listen to what they're saying and listen to the body language and listen what's underneath. And the way you get buy-in from a parent if the parent comes and says, here are the, there was one example once of a mom who, who called me and was so mad and said, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. I don't want to meet with my BCBA. I, you know, you said this was going to be good. It's terrible. It's horrible. I don't know why I have to come and meet with them. Blah, 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 blah. And I said to her, well, tell me a little bit about your son and tell me what's important to you. And she said, he's 12 and he cannot brush his teeth. And every day it's a battle to get him to brush his teeth. And she said, and just once in my life, I have a big family and, and we always used to love to go to dinner and we can't go to dinner, all of us, because two people have to be assigned to him and they have to chase him through the restaurant because he can't sit and have dinner. And I said to her, have you said this to your BCBA, that these are the two things on your list? And she said, well, no. Because we go in and talk about everything else. And from the parent side, I said, we have to be better communicators too. You need to go in and you need to talk about that at every meeting. I'm sorry that they didn't pick up on it and didn't ask you, but we need to be talking about that. And then I did go and have a conversation with her BCBA and said, and she said, I can't get this mom to want to do anything different. And I said, well, because you haven't, there's the two things that she wants and you haven't addressed those. And if you do, and then they did, and they have this great relationship to this day. Yeah. And the young man has made significant progress on so many other things besides brushing his teeth. But the, I yes. remember the BCBA saying, oh, we could absolutely target the teeth brushing. He absolutely can do that. Is that what the thing is? And I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> there, there are two people who want the same thing, but, but there's a disconnect there, Mandy. yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I, sh I should also say that I, I am not here to tell you that I have been doing this my entire practice history, which again comes in that reinforcement of, and punishment realm in my own behavioral history as a practitioner. Like I have missed this boat many, many times. And it's because I missed the boat. Yeah. Uh, it's because I learned from the mistake that I can now say what should be happening is this, right? Because I, I certainly uh, made choices that were based on, well, this is just what I know how to do, right? But then if you, if you get the feedback and you find out, hey, I missed that thing when they said that, I should have been doing this other thing first, then that's good. That's, that's a learning history. That's, that's, that's growth. Right. Well, can I raise my hand and say that I have been the parent who's been guilty of the thing on the other side? <laughs> I, my son was having therapy for more than a year before I said to them, I need help because my child is biting and kicking me. I didn't yeah. tell them that. And right. I was afraid to tell them that. Right. I was afraid they would look at me and him differently and we would not get the help and support we needed. It took I a understand. year before I trusted that. So I get it when a parent doesn't say, hey, you know, can we talk about toothbrushing? Uh, mm -hmm. I understand it, but that's yeah. why, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the other things that um, I build into the decision models um, are things, you know, sort of understand whether or not this is an issue of if mom and dad come in separately or together, you know, whatever the family unit looks like and they say, well, he spends time at their house sometimes and my house sometimes, and we can't get on the same page then maybe the first step isn't let's go put together a behavior plan. Maybe the first step is let's figure out how to get everybody on the same page before mm -hmm. you start a behavior plan, right? So again, really listening to what are the things that you have in place that are working for you? 
what are your issues that you want to change? What's, what's affecting your quality of life and what do we need to put all around you to set you up for your individual best possible outcomes? Cause it looks different for every single person. Mandy, I just want more people to listen to you. So let's go through some of the different things. Um, so you do have the comp- the company non-binary solutions, and that's mainly for BCBAs and and companies that are doing ABA to come to you with help with support so that they can make effective and meaningful decisions about case management faster with more expertise. Correct. That's right. Case management, treatment planning, ethical treatment selection, all of it. Amazing. So where if because we do have BCBAs who watch the show, where would they go to to get to find you and to get hooked up with what you do? Uh, Nonbinarysolutions.com is uh, obviously the the company website. Um, You can find me as Amanda Ralston on LinkedIn. Um, I'm all over various social media and uh, various levels of professionalism, depending on which platform you pick. So buyer beware. And um, I totally love your, like the things you post on Facebook. So I'm just putting that out there. Johanny's written in and said, hi, Shannon from Philly suburbs. What a great topic and guest. Thanks to all. I agree. Um, and, uh, but how do we get the uh, help directly? Yeah, she wants yeah. to know how do we get help for parents directly? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm working on these custom models for my for some of my bigger beta clients right now. I am working on developing some apps that can be used by uh, anybody that lives and works with somebody that is affected by quality of life issues with or without autism. So um, it's going to take a little bit. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I have to put a few things in place, but uh, stay tuned. And I'm, I'm sure I will let Shannon know as I get this roadmap built out. Excuse me. Well, and I just want to say for so many of you that have written into us that are getting ABA around the world and, you know, it's, can we acknowledge for a second, it's a hard time for ABA. Yes. Um, There's not enough staff. Uh, There's a constant battle with insurance um, that insurance keeps driving. Well, we want you to do it this way without paying attention to what the clinicians are saying about how it should be. Um, And some of the decisions that insurance making are not outcome driven. And I, I have my feelings about why that might be, but, you know, um, it's a hard time. And I think that there are people out there who are trying to provide really good ABA, and there are people who are struggling being able to provide that. But I think we as parents can be empowered enough to, to go to our ABA provider and say, hey, I saw someone on this show that I watch that might be of interest to you, and that you can connect them with Mandy. Also, sometimes they have guest speakers come in. I know there are ABA providers who will pay me to come in and talk about things. They could just as easily pay Mandy to come in and tell what she's saying too. You know what I mean? So don't be afraid, you guys, to put that out to your ABA provider. If they're busy doing their thing, they may not be up on all these. They might not know what Mandy is doing. So you can definitely introduce them and say, check this out. And I think what you'll find is that like-minded people will want to know more like I did. I wanted to know more about what Mandy was doing. So uh, I want to go back a little bit because we kind of glazed over, you You said this, this sort of uh, predictor of, you know, what would be potentially best outcome. And I want to go back over each one of them and talk about it because people always ask me that. How how do we know if we're doing what's best? How, what's, you know, we want to give our, our son or daughter the best possible opportunity. How do we know? And you brought up three things. And I, I've always added one other one. So I, I want to hear your three things and talk about those and then ask you what you think about my fourth one. Because I have a feeling you're going to like it. I think, yeah, I, I think there's a fourth one that uh, escaped my brain as I was rattling those off. But yeah, the, the research basically points to uh, intensity of services. Uh, in general, the more, the better. If we're talking about a comprehensive ABA program for early intervention, uh, we can go through an entire different talk show about focused versus comprehensive. And, you know, there are people that are two-year-old, three-year-old that don't need 30, 40 hours a week. That's a clinician acumen ability to prescribe dosage. Again, different talk show. We'll save that for another visit. Um, So, yeah, intensity uh, is one. Uh, Imitation skills seem to be a predictor of some sort. 
Um, and third is tell them what you mean by that imitation skills. So the ability to mimic what another person is doing, uh, either physically, facially, uh, with objects or without vocally or non-vocally. So just that ability that if, if I, if I scratch my nose, that it makes you want to scratch your nose. Um, if I can say to somebody, you know, let's, let's do wheels on the bus and they, they actually start mimicking the gestures as we're singing. That seems to be a predictor of uh, some of the best possible outcomes. But again, this is, this is, I'm just quoting research yeah. that's been research. done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and then, the and then the last one is caregiver involvement. You know, how deeply everybody is actually involved together on that team. Yes. And, and so in the research that I've done, uh, the fourth one that I've seen is having some level of expertise, having eyes on the program. That, yeah. that research that I'm aware of um, suggested that because here's the thing where I think parents get all twisted up is that we say, well, we want to have the most experienced person doing the therapy, um, that that's what we want. And I agree with you. That is not what has been shown to be the most effective. Um, right. it, it just isn't. That would that's be right. like saying, I want the brain surgeon to come in and constantly be changing the bandages. That's exactly it, right. It, it does. It's not the way it works. But people say, well, they brought this you know, 19-year-old kid in to do the therapy with my child, and I'm not convinced that this 19-year-old knows how to do this. And, mm-hmm. and what the research has shown that I am aware of is that it's important that they, that they have a basic understanding of, of what they're doing, just like the parents need to have a basic understanding, but that where it's really critical for outcomes is in what, where, what's driving the decisions, the architect who's deciding what we teach when and what criteria we set. That that, if there is a level of expertise there, that children who are making progress will make more progress, which goes hand in hand with what your company does. That's right. Um, Anybody that's somewhat familiar with physical therapy or occupational therapy at this point, um, if you've had any of those kind of treatments recently, you've probably had a similar experience as a patient that the occupational or physical therapist has done an assessment and come up with a treatment plan for you. And they may continually uh, supervise, check in, look, reassess about how you're doing for each of your visits. But the majority of your time is spent with technicians, uh, not certified, not licensed individuals who are given a program to take you through it and have it repeated. So it's actually re- rehabilitating the areas that need rehabilitation. And that's, that's basically what's happening with the tiered level of treatment uh, provision through applied behavior analysis. And that comes from um, a article that was written in 1957 uh, by, um, I believe it was B.F. Skinner, where it's called the, the nurse as the behavioral practitioner or the nurse practitioner as the behavior technician. I'll have to look it up. Sorry. I think I just murdered okay, that. Okay. But uh, essentially that's, that's what they discovered that the, the, the person that was the certified provider could then go in with the nurse practitioners and say, here's what I want you to do with this person uh, every day for the next 30 days and would check in and look at the data to see whether or not that person was progressing under that type of prescription and then readjust based on what the data is telling them. And that's exactly what is the history and how we've gotten to the place that we are now with applied behavior analysis. It's all about the acumen and uh, proficiency of the person who is the licensed behavior analyst that is doing the assessment, making a treatment plan, and continually looking at the data to assess whether the person is responding to that behavior or that treatment plan appropriately. Yes, amen to that. Um, but I, but I want to say, when I'm talking to parents, one of the things that I say to you guys is, let's, let's, go th- let's say that the four things are on the list, right? That one is, I always say it's opportunity to learn, which that's the intensity. How much opportunity are we giving you to learn? Well, almost always the person who decides that amount is the parent. Yeah. Almost always that is a decision that you guys make. Yes, there's a funding choice that's involved in there. But the truth is, is that we see with insurance, if you're, if you're in the know and willing to fight and you watch the show here and we tell you how, that prescription, if your child is under the age of five, you are going to win 
of the legal argument of getting a 40-hour program. And then it becomes about choice and if you can get someone to staff it, right? But a lot of the choice there is the parent. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over the imitation skills for a second and and go to the third one, which is you know, making sure that there is a, an experienced architect on there. And you might feel like you don't have a choice in that, but I think you do. And when you talk to your ABA provider, even if your BCBA is not the most experienced BCBA, I would be asking the question, where is the mentorship coming from? And if there isn't mentorship, refer them to Mandy. Uh, <laughs> just saying, <laughs> right? And then the fourth one, did you hear what she said, which is parent involvement? And I always go back to the first one, which is opportunity to learn, that we're told 40 hours of opportunity to learn or the dosage as they call it, right? But the truth is that in the original studies, what they found is it was 40 hours of that with those technicians. And then the parents were doing it so that really the prescription was making every waking hour educationally enriched. So I just go, look at how much power there is as a parent. You can choose most of these. Then I want to ask you about the imitation skills because I'm sure there's a lot of parents who are watching who are like, oh no, this is not my child's strong suit. But I'm going to ask you as an expert, do you see that children can learn that skill and get better at it? Yes, definitely. Um, <clears throat> even if you don't inherently have good quote, quote unquote imitation skills, uh, that is often one of the very first goals of an early intervention program is to improve those imitation skills because it's it's um, it's it's a behavioral cusp. Uh, learning to have that type of skill quickly uh, allows other types of skills to be built off of it, right? So you know. Think about imitation in terms of language acquisition. Um, if, if you are imitating what you're hearing in your environment, it makes it easier to pick up new language, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is why, again, parent involvement is very important because we need to know what types of skills are being um, uh, worked on with our child so that we can then imitate that back and forth with them, right? And so I, th I think about it in terms of if, if your child was going to a school to learn a new language for 30, 40 hours a week every day, and they came home and you didn't speak that language, they would not have an opportunity to immerse themselves in that language or to generalize that into their regular environment. And so that's the same thing with all the skills that they're learning in these early intensive programs. So that's that's why your involvement is so key is so that you can constantly mirror that back to them, what they're learning. So for me, that all goes back to, because if our child is not learning those imitation skills, I would guess, I don't want to put words into your mouth, that what we would do is up the intensity and make it more reinforcing for them to learn those those imitation skills. So for me, it all comes back to intensity, man. Yeah, I, yeah, I think again, it's it's knowing what you're working on, understanding how many trials or how much teaching opportunities does that person need to acquire something, uh, yeah. to learn something new, and then looking at your data. And if you're not getting the results you want, then yeah, you got to crank up the dial. You got to crank up the intensity. But when people hear intensity, and we're running out of time here, when people hear intensity, they think that their child is going to be worked like a workhorse, that that's what intensity looks like. You've got about a minute and a half. Talk to us about what it should look like, what intensity should look like for the child or the individual, because they might be a 27-year-old adult. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it should be a combination of what we would call sort of discrete trial work, or it's just one to one, maybe at a table, maybe not, maybe sitting on the floor. But it should also be a lot of naturalistic teaching opportunities as well. Um, so you're actually doing play based things that would be um, age appropriate, developmentally appropriate for that person, whatever age that person is. Yeah, so important. Because at the bottom of everything, one of the things that we talk about here on the show is that it has to be meaningful to them and it has to be fun. And if your child is not having fun and if they're teaching them something that it's like, why are you teaching that? I think you're with the wrong ABA provider is basically where I come from. But it's worth a conversation before you bail with them. It's a worth a conversation to sit down with them and go, how is this meaningful? How is this fun for them? Um, because otherwise you can't do the intensity. That's right. Mandy, 
like, I just, you're singing my song. Uh, and I love it. And that's why I was so, it, it took a while for us to be able to connect because you're on planes every other second, going places and speaking places. Um, and there was I'm a, a hotel now. having COVID in the middle, my fault, my bad, but I'm so glad that we got the opportunity and I hope you'll come back and join us in the future because I feel like what you're saying is probably one of the most important things. And I don't feel like it's getting to all the people I wanted to get to. I would be happy to come back. I'm 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 very um, appreciative of the opportunity to keep running my mouth on your platform. So well, we will make room for that. So anyway, uh, tell us again where we need to go to find out more about non-binary solutions and about what you're doing and where you're speaking and so on and so forth. Uh, you can find me again at nonbinarysolutions.com, or you can also find me at amandaralston.com. Um, those are two easy ways to link up with me. I appreciate everybody's interest. There you go. Thank you so much, Mandy, for being here with us. Uh, we're going to uh, say goodbye to you right now. And I'm going to say to you guys that tomorrow's show, we're going to be showing you highlights from Saturday night's event with all the celebrities who walk the red carpet to support autism care today and raise money for that. I hope you guys will tune in for that. Then we have stories from the spectrum on Friday and we're back here live on Monday. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mandy. Bye-bye. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.